Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Everything can be hands-free. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else uh, will be hands-free and you can you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be talking to, about Daniel. We're right in the middle of his prophecies in chapters 8. I'm going to get into chapter 9 briefly today. But uh, this isn't so much about the prophecies as it is about him. Uh, what makes a man of God, I think it's a really important study. And then the next study will also um, go really in deep into his, in depth rather, uh, into his prayers. Um, what a wonderful model uh, for prayer he is for all of us. And then remember, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the show. Now, I know Paula's back. I haven't seen her yet, but I will see her tonight, and she'll be ready for you tomorrow. So, ladies, especially for you, if you have any questions or need any encouragement about anything, uh, Paula will be here. Well, let's get to some questions. I've got a couple of difficult ones to start with here. Um first one is from our email inbox from Nacho. Pastor Ron, I read an article recently about praying in the Spirit and prophesying. In the article, a lady describes her path of trying to listen to God. In so doing, she asked her pastor how to do it. The pastor said that she needed to ask the Lord to show images in her mind. She could then prophesy what she saw. The lady then tried herself. She said that as I prayed, I pictured a friend talking with Jesus and her dad, who has passed recently. Is that a correct way of hearing from God, picturing it the way you'd like it to happen? Uh, not sure. This is not only not, not a correct way of doing it. This is so dangerous. and leaves us so open to, uh, to lies from the enemy. It leaves us open to the imagination. Uh, running wild and and creating all kinds of pictures. This is certainly not the way to do it. Um, praying in the spirit is simple. It's it's not. It doesn't have to be uh, confusing or mystical. It's simply praying in the will of God. You know, when your heart is grateful, and Paul says it with thanksgiving, we can make our request known to God. Other words, other words, if we're grateful, then we can ask God for stuff. But in asking him for the things that we're, we're requesting, we need to be able to say, thy will and not my will be done. 
To pray in the will of God, to pray in the Spirit, is also praying with a heart that's right before God, a heart that's been examined, a heart that is ready to hear whatever the Lord has to say. Um, but, but in this particular concept, listening to God or asking God to show images in their mind, I can't imagine a pastor who would give this kind of counsel. Um, this this would be a, a, an unhealthy, uh, out-of-balance church, and it's really, really dangerous. So we can imagine anything. And one of the things that we have to remember, Nacho, is that when we pray, the enemy is there. He's trying to interrupt our prayers. He's trying to confuse us. He's trying to distract us. And if he knows that we're looking for pictures, he'll give us pictures. That's why John says in First John chapter 4, uh, verse 1 and 4, it says to test the spirits, because not every spirit is from God. And this, this concept here that, we'll, well, because I'm a Christian and if I'm asking God, all the things that come are from God, is, is naive. And, and frankly, it's a little bit embarrassing. So please, Nacho, if you get a, an opportunity to, to uh, talk to this lady or if there's a way that you can communicate, this is certainly not the way to uh, pray in the Spirit. Uh, And remember, prophesying is simply um, um, a source of encouragement, edification. It doesn't make one a prophet. The gift of prophecy is different than the office of a prophet. There are no more prophets. The gift of prophecy still exists. And the purpose of prophecy is to encourage or to exhort, to strengthen or edify someone. And uh, anything short of that is uh, contrary to what the Bible says. So this is simply not something that anybody should have recommended, and I'm mortified, actually, that uh, her pastor would tell her to do that. Horrible, horrible, horrible. I don't know why we have to make everything so mystical. It's not that easy. God tries to make stuff easy. We have to hear from the Lord. Let me also say this, Nacho. The only way to really hear from God and know for sure that it's from the Lord is to know your Bible. God's not going to contradict anything that he's ever said. And so if if God speaks to our heart and it's consistent with the word and it's sort of coincidental with your uh, daily reading with the Lord, God will confirm. If If he wants you to know something, he'll make sure you know it. And he'll let you know it's from him. But certainly just imagining things or Getting pictures in my head, that's not the way at all to do it. That's scary. Here is an anonymous one. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thank you for all that you do for the Lord. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, My husband and I have four children and pregnant with our fifth. uh, We are five weeks pregnant. I've had several miscarriages, and of course, you can imagine I'm concerned again. I told my husband with the miscarriages and difficult pregnancies, I don't want to have any more children after this one. I've mentioned getting my tubes tied. I love my husband and don't want things to change because I think he may want another one after this one. He's okay with getting my tubes tied. However, we both don't want to impact our relationship with the Lord or go against God's word. Is it okay to tie my tubes? Is there anything biblically saying that we should not do that uh, and or protect ourselves from having kids by using an IUD or condoms? Uh, Let me take this very slowly, um, Anonymous, and and my heart just hurts. We have had uh, a whole bunch of women here at Calvary Chapel who have a lot of babies in heaven, and I have lived through the pain uh, and, and and literally the the grief and the agony uh, with these women so many times. I'm not talking about one or two either. We've had a bunch. And um, um, the one thing I always tell them is don't let the emotion or the grief force you to make decisions that you might later regret. One of the great things about our God is that he lives outside of time and space. He knows the end from the beginning. If you've got a moment, Anonymous, I'll tell you a quick story. We had one lady who, uh, and and I sometimes get the people confused, but she had, I think, eight babies in heaven. And um, and her family was begging her. She she didn't have any children at this point. Um, but um, 
um, she had eight babies in heaven and her family was begging her to stop trying to get pregnant because they just couldn't bear watching her go through the grief of losing more children. And we were actually at an afterglow here at Calvary Chapel. I knew these people quite closely and we'd always been praying for them. And uh, I got a word from the Lord for a word of knowledge. And that word of knowledge was was uh, that, that, that she would have a child. And I'm very careful about stuff like that because I don't want to misrepresent the Lord. I certainly don't want to give anybody false hope. But it was so strong that I had to, I, I just shared it. She knew that the word was from her. I didn't call her by name or anything. But, but she knew that it was a word for her. And she got pregnant again. And uh, while well, everybody's waiting for the babies to, to, to die or the babies to be born, uh, stillborn, um, uh, this baby just kept growing in her womb. The doctor kept saying everything is fine. She'd get to 12 weeks and 13 weeks and then past that. And it was a very normal, uneventful pregnancy. She had a baby that's the, the, the only child that her and her husband have had. Um, and um, uh, if she would have taken the advice of her family, she wouldn't have been able to have that child. Now, you have four kids already, and this will be your fifth. And I want to pray for you before I get done answering the question. Uh, but this is a matter now for you and your husband to seek the Lord's will. Um, it, it's not sinful for you to say, I don't want any more kids. I think four, if you, this one uh, um, is born successfully, five is a quiverful. Um, but here's the thing that I want everybody to do. I want them to ask the Lord what his plan is. If God wants to bless you with more, why would we not want to be blessed? Uh, God will likely give you this desire of your heart not to have any more children, you and your husband, if you seek the Lord together. Um, uh, you'll be in agreement with it, and it won't be a concern for you. And and then, yes, the Lord would say it's okay to get your tubes tied. It's not sinful to use condoms. It's not sinful to use an IUD. Um, it's not sinful after four or five children to have your tubes tied. But it is sinful not to ask God what he wants. And I think that's really where you need to be with this question. You need to say, okay, Lord, I, I want to know your heart before I cut myself off from any more blessings. I want your heart on this. And I believe that the Lord will, will make it clear to you and your husband. And then what you do, you can do with a clear conscience. That's how important I think it is. So uh, I think it's important for you to seek the will of God. I hope that makes sense to you. And I'm going to pray very quickly. Father, uh, this woman and her husband uh, and this pregnancy, I, I give it to you. Wrap your hands around this child in her womb, Lord. And bring this baby to a safe and healthy delivery. Keep mom safe. Keep the baby safe. And we pray that you're glorified in the process. Jesus, I also want to ask you to make yourself clear, loud and clear to this husband and wife so that they can have the confidence of knowing that whatever decision they make is a decision that's been made in the perfect will of God. Bless them and keep them, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for asking the question, and I'll be praying. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Um. You might be crazy if I say this, or you might think I'm crazy. But I don't know. <laughs> I know, I know but, you, um, Jimmy. It's okay. I I know today. I had this. I had this experience with a demon. I mean, as far as um um the the person was looking at me, and and I saw it and. All the Holy Spirit. I wasn't afraid, but the Holy Spirit told me just to walk away. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw it in the inside the person, the, the way they looked at me, the way they, uh, they smiled. It, it was just, it, it brought like, not scared, but I just, the Holy Spirit warned me. It was a person at work, but I've heard rumors of this person at work that deals with um, like uh, tarot cards and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, and rejects because rejects the uh, word of God, like you know, stop trying to convert me and all this. But nobody's yeah. trying to convert no her. But the way 
the way it looked at me, it was like, oh, man. And I just walked away. And I've never yeah, experienced Jimmy, I, nothing like that in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think that's crazy at all. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I, that's crazy at all. I think the Holy Spirit gave you discernment. And um, uh, and and you did what he told you to do, rather than engage. You walked away. Uh, I, I I don't think it's unusual at all to encounter demon possession. Um, typically, when you encounter a, a demon in a person, uh, and, and especially if that person, uh, that host of the demon knows you're a Christian, of course the demon knows. Um, then they will express some sort of anger or vitriol. But um, um, it just sounds to me like the Holy Spirit was protecting you from uh, an encounter. And that you weren't afraid, I think, is important to key on here. We don't need to be afraid of demons. It's certainly not any fun encountering them. But we don't need to be afraid of them. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, But um, I I think, Jimmy, what you experienced is... uh, uh, not at all that unusual. Unusual for you, and it's not fun, but but uh, I believe you. No problem. Jimmy, thank you. Good to hear from you again. We've been missing you and praying for you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Ernie from our mobile app. What does it mean when someone remarries that they commit adultery. Um, Ernie, when Jesus said that uh, somebody who leaves his wife without biblical warrant um, is guilty of adultery and causing her, the, the woman he marries to be an adulterous woman as well, uh, we have to understand the Jewish context of Jesus's um, statements there. Uh, he was answering a question. This comes from Matthew chapter 19. Um, he was being asked questions about uh, whether or not it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And basically, um, they were asking Jesus these two sort of disagreeing factions, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, depending on their teachers. Uh, there was one group that taught that you could divorce for any reason. If your wife displeased you in any fashion or form, then you were free to give her a certificate of divorce and move on with your life. And they did that often. And then the other side of that argument, there was a group who believed that it was never okay to divorce, except in the case of adultery. And they were asking Jesus, testing him really to settle the argument. Uh, And Jesus didn't want to talk to him about divorce. He talked to them about marriage. In the beginning, God put them together, male and female. He put them together. In other words, Ernie, Ernie, Jesus was saying, why don't we talk about how to stay together? Let's not talk about how to separate, how to stay together. And uh, what he was doing was rebuking them for what he considered serial adultery. Um, Somebody married somebody, they didn't like him, they divorced him, married somebody else. Jesus' perspective, that was just adultery. Uh, Sure, they had a legal certificate of divorce and then a certificate of marriage. But Jesus said, you're not fooling me. This is just your way of committing adultery. And so what he's saying is he's reaffirming the sanctity of marriage. And when a man and a woman gets married, it is one man, one woman forever. Now, Ernie, let me go down the corridor of time and space to the time that we live in. Um, We know that God gives us grounds for Divorce, biblical grounds, adultery, violates the marriage covenant. Abandonment violates the marriage covenant. Um, uh, uh, Physical abuse, while Jesus doesn't specifically talk about that, uh, physical abuse certainly would be a violation of the covenant uh, of marriage. And and if you've got those three things, then then certainly you're free to remarry, remarry, um, and you're not guilty of adultery. What Jesus is saying is in spirit, when we divorce for reasons that are not biblical. Uh, When we divorce because we want to or because we're unhappy, um, then we're we're basically guilty of the same crime, uh, adultery, that Jesus was addressing, addressing with the Jewish religious leaders at the time. So that's what it means. If you have been married, divorced, and remarried, Ernie, uh, I don't know what your reasons were, Uh, If you had biblical reasons, then you're certainly not guilty of adultery. If you didn't have biblical reasons and you did it anyway, which happens all the time in church, 
we need to remember that God forgives. But you've got to acknowledge the sin. You've got to say, Lord, I should have stayed married, but I didn't. And now I've met somebody else. So, so, so now what you do is you commit this marriage, your current marriage, to the Lord. And you live it on his terms. And you live it for his glory. And Ernie, if you do that, you don't have to worry about it. We've we got to remember that, that, that grace provides second chances. The law never did. Grace provides second chances. Does God want us to stay married, not get divorced? Of course. But when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And then 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. He'll put your current marriage on that solid foundation. So that's what's the application, Ernie, for us as new as New Testament Christians. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Danny. He says, Pastor Ron, of the four Gospels, which is the most comprehensive? Um, Danny, I don't, think, I don't think comprehensive is the right word. Uh, of all the four Gospels, they have a different point of view or a different perspective. Um, Matthew, I think, is the most complete. It is the most Jewish it is the gospel that portrays Jesus as uh, the the Christ or the Messiah, uh, and that's how he's present presented in in Matthew's gospel over and over, according to the scriptures or to fulfill that which is written. So it is a very the most Jewish of the gospels, and its purpose was to present Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews. Um, Mark's gospel. Um, presents Jesus as the servant of all. The servant of all. And this, by the way, all of these co- coincide with some of the Old Testament visions of what some of the, the uh, prophets saw uh, in their visions. Uh, Mark w- would be the beast, the beast of burden. And Jesus came not to be served, though he was God, he came to serve instead. He didn't come to judge, but to save he came as the servant of man. That's what uh, Mark's gospel, which is incidentally Peter's uh, um, telling of the gospel. So he's a servant. Um, Luke's gospel presents Jesus as human. 100% God, but 100% man. That's why he's referred to as the son of man there several times. But um, Luke's gospel draws attention to Jesus' duality. He is 100% God and 100% man, but he is always human. And so the emphasis there on the incarnation. And then John's gospel, which is also very Jewish, uh, not, not as much as Matthew, but John's gospel presents Jesus as fully God. Uh, in all of his deity, um, um, the emphasis is on miracles, his I am statements over and over and over. So uh, of the four Gospels, that is the difference in their perspective. Um, but but in terms of being comprehensive, um, probably Matthew. Uh, but remember, they're, they're, they're all telling the same story, but with a different bent to it. So, Danny, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, it's very important that we understand those perspectives when we teach it. One of the reasons that um, I, I like Mark's gospel, I think, in reading it, we get some insight into who Peter really is. Peter is um, short to the point. Um, he, he never he never takes a short story and makes it long. Um, he's just focused on the work. And and I, I like that about it. So uh, probably Mark is the most fun one to teach uh, just because um, tell a long story um, very quickly. Danny, thank you. That's a good question. Let me see. I've got two minutes. Let me get a two-minute question. Maxine says, with the world falling apart all around us, how do I maintain hope? It's very depressing. Uh, I guess this isn't a two-minute question, Maxine. Um Maxine, your hope can't be in this world. So the way you maintain hope is to look into the eyes of Jesus. I say all the time on this program and in our church here at Calvary, um, just be with Jesus. 
In his presence is the fullness of joy. There's no joy without hope. So instead of looking around at the world that we live in, look at Jesus. Talk to him. Be with him. Protect yourself. Don't spend a bunch of time watching news stations, regardless of which political bent you view on the news station. Uh, just, Just keep your Bible open. Keep your heart open. Take walks with Jesus. He is our only source of hope. And people in this world who think they're going to find hope anyplace else are always going to be frustrated in the process. So, Maxine, you're right. The world's falling apart. But we shouldn't be surprised by that as Christians. Our Bible tells us that's going to happen. So just don't let your hope be on this world being right. Your hope is in heaven. Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits. That's what you need to remember. We don't live for this world. We live in it, but we don't live for this world. We live for Jesus and in his presence, as I said, is the fullness of joy. We've got 30 minutes left on the Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show. If you are just now getting in your car, it's not too late to call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Regina. She says, I'm saved, but always worry that I could lose my salvation. Can you help? Uh, Regina, you can't lose what you didn't earn. You can't lose what was given to you. And you can't lose what was secured by God. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, and and this is all through the scriptures, but, but this is just so, speaks so directly to your struggle. Um, we're told that, that when we're born again, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is given as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So the guarantee, it's not, you're not guaranteeing it. I'm not guaranteeing it. It's the Bible, the Word of God that guarantees it. That means God is the guarantor, and since he's the guarantor, and since God can't lie, since God is faithful and always keeps his promises, then he is the one who has promised to to, um, make sure that you end up in the place that you've always wanted to be. He who began a good work with you, Paul says to the church at Philippi, will be faithful to complete it. You don't have to complete it. He's faithful. When you are faithless, he, Paul tells Timothy, is faithful. And I think, Regina, part of your problem is that you're you're holding your salvation like it's something that you did. It's something you lose. And all you got to do is hang around with Jesus. You stay with Jesus and you will never be worried about losing your salvation because Jesus will be there with you and you'll know. So this is something you've got to decide. Do I really believe what the Bible says? The Holy Spirit was given to us as a deposit This happens upon conversion, guaranteeing our inheritance. And if we remember that, and God is the one who's guaranteeing it, um, that's pretty good ironclad protection as far as I'm concerned. So you just be with Jesus. Don't worry about losing your salvation. Don't let the enemy lie. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're more than a conqueror through him who loved us? Romans chapter 8 says that. Those are the questions you've got to settle. And in those times when you have doubt, remember that doubt comes from an outside source, the enemy of our souls. 
In those moments when you have doubts, remember at that very moment, okay, am I going to believe what I'm feeling right now? Or am I going to believe what the Bible says? And if the Bible's your anchor, believe me, that's all the help that you'll ever need. So, Regina, I hope that helps. Here is a question. we got Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm, um, you know what, I hope I make sense on this. Now, it says that the name of Jesus is above all names. How, it, is the word name different because of the fact that there's all these other kids that were born then that Jesus was a very common name? So he was called, he was to be named Jesus, which is a very common name, and yet it says that the name of Jesus is above all names. So if you would sort that out, I was thinking about um, that this morning. I appreciate it. Thank I, you, I, Bob. I can do that, Cindy. Thank you. And I can usually figure out your questions, so I appreciate it very, very much. Um, again, we need to remember the Jewish construct of the Gospels. Um, the name means more than just the name. My name is Ron. Um, Ron doesn't have any specific meaning that I'm aware of, uh, but 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 in in the Jewish culture, it did. And he will save the people from their sins. And and so the name signifies who he is and what he's come to do. And literally, it identifies him as the Savior of the world. So his name, Jesus Christ, and we would add Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that is the name that is preeminent above every name that's ever lived, ever, ever been given. Um, it, it doesn't mean that, that there were other kids named Jesus, um, and that name was above the names, though. No, it's just the name that describes the one that he was attached to. In this case, it was attached to, to God who became a man. So that's really important to understand. It's just his name describes who he is, what he's come to do. His name is above all other names, and the idea there is preeminence. It comes first. Now, for us, Cindy, one of the problems that we have with that name and the idea of preeminence, it means that in our lives, if we're going to apply that practically in our lives, it means that he has to come first before anything and everything before everyone. It means you've got to love Jesus more than you love your spouse. It means you've got to love Jesus more than you love your kids. It means you've got to love Jesus more than you love your career. You, you've got to put Jesus and his will for your life in that place of preeminence. And then you're, you're actually living out the application of what it means that his name is above every other name. It's interesting that in the first century, there were because it was such a common name, Yeshua, um, um, so many kids named after the, the, the Jewish hero Joshua, and uh, and and you know, a lot of them after meeting Jesus changed your name. Is uh, a disciple in our in our New Testament called Jesus, who is called Justice. And, and you know he he took on another name. I'm certain because he didn't want to 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 take on the name of Jesus, knowing that that he is unworthy for that kind of name. So so they just gave nicknames. They changed names. Used what we would call middle names or other other uh, ways of of uh, calling people. So that's what it means, and it just means his name is preeminent above all other names and and because of who he was and what he came to do. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it very, very much. Um, oh, <laughs> my research department says the meaning of the name Ron, its origin is Scottish, and it means mountain of strength or ruler's counselor. Well, I think that's a perfect description, don't you? There you go. <laughs> Cindy, my producer, loves doing the research. And although I don't feel like a mountain of strength, in Christ I can do all things. Thank you, Cindy. God bless you for that. Mark wants to know, is self-defense okay for Christians? Mark, not only is it okay for Christians, I think it's mandated. We have to protect ourselves and we've got to protect those that we love uh, I mean, that's part of a man's job is to be a protector for uh, his family, for his life. So, of course, it's okay. Um, I think sometimes 
people get a little thrown off with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if someone slaps you um, in, in the face, give him the other side, let him slap that also. Jesus was just describing what he did. That wasn't a directive for us. Yes, it's okay to defend yourself. And I have this conversation a lot of times with military men and or cops uh, because when they get saved and they got all these questions, the Holy Spirit's doing a new thing, they want to know, is it okay to do what I do? I mean, I get in fights and I might have to defend myself by use of deadly force. Yes, self-defense is okay for Christians and it's something that you need not to feel any guilt over at all. So, Mark, thank you for asking the question. Here is a question from Wallace. Can you discuss a practical theology about work and the Christian? Wow, Wallace, I've never had that question. Uh, If you're referring to, um, for example, Lutherans feel like uh, the, the will of God for our life is to honor him in our work, and certainly it's one of them, but that's uh, a lot of times a Lutheran will say, that's how I serve the Lord. Uh, I don't serve him at church, or I don't, I don't share my faith, but, but I'm, I'm serving God at work. I don't think that's a practical theology at all. Let me get really practical with you. For the Christian, in these last days especially, um, we, we need to be, we Christians need to be the best workers at our place of employment. We need to be the one worker that the bosses look to and say, that guy or that woman is a solution to my problems. I want all of my other workers to be like him or to be like her. That means we need to be there on time, ready to work. You know, not stroll in 10 minutes late, grab a cup of coffee, hang around talking to the other people. We need to be ready to go to work. doesn't matter how much you're getting paid, you agreed to work for it, we're to do our best knowing that the, the Lord really is the one that we're responsible to. He really is our boss. It means, Wallace, that we need to be uh, workers with a great attitude. You know, I I realize everybody at some point has problems with their place of employment, but as long as you're taking their money, you need to be a cheerleader for them. You you need to, to, to be such a bright light that everybody can see that you're serving somebody different. And people say, well, how can you do that if they're taking advantage of you? You do it for Jesus. They took advantage of Jesus. He allowed that for you. So when we're at work, we need to be that man or that woman who has a great attitude. We need to work, not just when the, the boss's eyes are on us, but we need to work as unto the Lord. We need not to get caught up in, in you know killing time on computers or on our phones. Uh, at work, we need to be serious about work and um, know that, that the Lord is the one who rewards us. And I, I think that's as practical as I can get. Don't get involved in the gossip. Don't stand around listening to the dirty stories about the weekend exploits of your coworkers. Just get there, be all business, but always have Jesus with you. Always have Jesus on your lips. And when somebody says, why are you working so hard? The answer is, hey, Jesus is right here with me, and uh, I want to make him proud. It's that simple. So that's as practical a theology you can get when it comes to work. But we, we need to be good workers. Wallace, one of the things that I see um, is people don't know how to work anymore. We do what we want to do instead of what we're being paid to do. And that really is a bad witness for Jesus. So I hope that answers your question, Wallace. Barbara says, Pastor Ron, why does God want us to give up everything in this world to be saved? Um, Barbara, Jesus said this. He said, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for me, you'll find it. So that's why he wants us to give up everything. Now, if you're referring to the rich and ruler, there was a, a, a different issue there. That was not um, um, Jesus speaking to Barbara. That was Jesus speaking to the rich young ruler. And the reason Jesus told him to sell everything that he has and give it to the poor and follow him is because Jesus knew that the rich young ruler was consumed by his wealth. I mean, he, he didn't need to trust God. He had all that money. Uh, Jesus knew that he was covetous. Jesus knew that that his security was in his possessions. And Jesus, who won't share his glory with anyone, Jesus wanted 
him to know that the only safe place was to be with Jesus, to follow him, give up everything and follow him. So that was very specific for you and for me, Barbara. It just means that the world has taught us to watch out for ourselves, to take care of number one. Uh, um, if we have to cut corners to get ahead, well, that's what we have to do. But but Jesus in the background is saying, none of that is for me. So here's what I want you to do. He would say, I want you to make me the center of your life. I want to be more important to you than anything, anyone, or any amount of money. And Jesus said, when we get to that place, that's when we really and truly find the meaning of life. Now, that statement that I started uh, this answer with, Barbara, just drives people crazy. If you lose your life for him, you'll find it. What that means is that unless we're living for Christ, we still haven't experienced the fullness of life or the abundant life that Jesus promised us. And while it doesn't make sense to us to give up our hopes and our dreams and follow Jesus, um, uh, until we do it, until we take that step of faith, we don't realize how abundantly Jesus pours himself out upon and then through us. So what God wants for you, Barbara, not not for the rich young ruler, um, if you are covetous, if, you are, if you've got a lot of things in your life that come before Jesus, he wants you to give all those things up. But generally speaking, what he's saying is, you put me first and then just see how rich your life will really be. And Barbara, I believe with all of my heart that the reason so many Christians live frustrated lives is because they're unwilling to let go of the things that matter to them and hold on just to the one thing that really does matter, and that's, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. So, Barbara, I hope that makes sense to you. This is an important lesson to learn. The Apostle Paul talks about learning the secret of being content in each and every circumstance. And two things um, um, from that, that statement. One, it's a secret. Nobody knows it. I mean, we, we don't know what it is. It's not instinctive for us. So we, it's something that we've got to pursue the Lord, uh, ask him for the wisdom, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but it is the only source of being content. So it's a secret to find out what it is. You've got to live it. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. And Barbara, for a lot of us, it's just a matter of saying, okay, Lord, when I was spending all my energy trying to watch out for me, when I was spending my energy trying to become rich, how did that turn out? And then you came into my life and everything changed. Jesus said, let me be the Lord of your life every day. Not just your Savior, but let me be the Lord of your life every day. And we'll walk together. I always call it under the spout where the glory comes out. Barbara, that's the place to live. So thank you, Barbara, for that question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Monty. He says, is it a sin to cuss? It's a bad habit for me. Uh, Monty, it is a sin. Uh, let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth, Paul writes, and um, we're, we're to let our speech be seasoned with salt. Uh, that's a purifying element in grace, um, light. Uh, we're to be different from the people in the world. So yeah, it's a sin to cuss. Um, it's a bad habit for you, but, but as a believer, Monty, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And believe me, he is stronger than your bad habits. Let me share my story very briefly with you, Monty. I um, I was a baseball player. I played baseball in college. I wanted to play professional baseball and wasn't good enough to make it. But uh, always figured I would make it, you know. Um, So I hung around baseball players. And baseball players cuss. I mean, all the time. Uh, Then I became a car dealer. Got in the car business and language in the car business is even worse. Cussing became a way of life for me. And when I got saved, the first time one of those words started to come out of my mouth, all I could think of was, well, well, I can't do that anymore. I'm a Christian. I can't talk like that. Now, remember, I wasn't raised in church, so this wasn't a legalistic thing. It's just something that the Holy Spirit was bearing witness. And I didn't want to, 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 to cause Jesus any more pain. And um, I stopped cussing instantly. And I mean, I cussed all the time. All the time, all the big words, and and I stopped. Uh, in Bible college, Monty, I was with a young man who is now a pastor of a church in Florida, 
And uh, he was younger than I was, and, and uh, he would, would ask me for counsel. And one day we were talking, and, and I just, without even thinking about it, this curse word came out of my mouth. And the look on his face was just, I mean, he was just blown away that I, that came out of your mouth? And I felt so bad. I apologized first to him, and then I apologized to the Lord. I'm so sorry. And then Jesus said, you know, just because you think, and this is just him dealing with my heart, just because you think you, you, you're done with all this stuff, that Phil still lives in your heart. He's giving me a picture. And the picture was that when that young man and I were talking, Jesus was standing in the middle, and before that foul word defiled the young man I was talking to, that foul word went through Jesus and defiled him. And that broke me, Monty. I mean, it just broke me. And I remember praying, okay, Lord, you said that this stuff comes out of our mouth because it's in our heart. So, God, I'm giving you my heart. Take that stuff out of my heart. And then I went one step further and I said, Lord, I know that before it comes out of my mouth, it has to go to my brain so my brain can process it. So I'm asking you to, to cut it off somewhere between my heart and my brain so that I never embarrass you. And I don't want to do that ever again. And Monty, I've been saved for 30 years, a little over 30 years now. And actually, it's getting closer to 31. Uh, but, but that's the only curse word that's ever come out of my mouth. Uh, in all the time I've been saved. And this is from a guy who habitually cussed. And it's because I just didn't want to disappoint my Jesus. So make it really personal, Monty. Yes, it's a sin to cuss. Repent. Ask God to forgive you. And then let him know that you you ever want to defile him with words come out of your mouth like that again. And I promise you the Holy Spirit will help you. It is definitely... A sin. Here is a question from Chip from our email inbox. Why did God choose to create the 12 tribes of Israel? What is the purpose or relevance? Um, you know, Chip, when we ask why, why God did things, uh, there, there's no satisfactory answer. Uh, twelve, we know, is the number of government. Um, uh, the twelve tribes of Israel, there are twelve apostles uh, who were disciples. He chose twelve uh, when Judas was among them. So, so twelve was the number he chose. Why he did it, um, we're, we're, we're not given the explanation. Uh, but he chose uh, twelve tribes, just like he chose you and he chose me. He chose. Twelve disciples who would become apostles, just like he chose you and just like he chose me. Um, but the purpose is, um, we know in the book of Revelation, there's going to be 24 lesser thrones around the throne of God. Uh, Twelve from the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament and 12 apostles. And they represent believers throughout the history of the world. They represent you and me, Chip. Um, so, so they have significance um, but in terms of why he chose them, why he settled on the number 12, um, God is wise. And I've always found it's better not to ask the question, why? Um, the relevance, I think, is important. 12, as I said, is the number of government. And uh, I always think of that, Chip, when I'm praying for our president or I'm praying for our senators or our representatives or our governors or our mayors, um, um, we just need to be reminded to pray for him. So that's uh, what he did, why he did it. Maybe we'll get that answer when we get to heaven. So I hope that helps. I think that we're getting pretty close to the end of the show here. Let's see what we've got here. Three. Jesse says, how is partial obedience viewed by God? Jesse, uh, partial obedience is viewed as the same as disobedience. Uh, if we're only being partially obedient to the Lord, then we are being disobedient. So let me get to one more question. I'm going to come back to that partial disobedience when uh, on the program on Friday. Uh, from our email inbox, Anonymous, Hi, Pastor on. If a pastor of the church commits adultery, does that disqualify them from ever teaching or preaching in a church again? I've heard a pastor saying it's okay to preach or teach again because of grace. What are your biblical thoughts? What disqualifies a pastor from ever 
preaching or teaching in a church. Anonymous, I have really super strong feelings on this, and I get pushed back from other pastors, uh, just like you suggested. I think if a pastor commits adultery, he has forfeited the right to to be a pastor. Um, you know, we're supposed to, to take care of the people. We're to set an example of Christ's likeness to them. And when we commit such grievous sin, then we have been guilty of misrepresenting the Lord. And I think that's when it's time to sit down. Now, that doesn't mean they can never teach again. For example, I know a guy who teaches men uh, who, who who once was a pastor and, he, and, he, and he's the pastor anymore. Uh, another man who counsels people, that's certainly a teaching ministry, after having been guilty of adultery. And they're very useful. Uh, men that are genuinely repentant are very, very useful. But when God puts you as the shepherd over his flock, remember it's his flock, and you violate the privilege of of having that calling, that gift, uh, so grievously, then I believe with all of my heart then we're disqualified, period. So um, a pastor has to be above reproach. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we think we're perfect. But it means that, that, that our sin has to be dealt with. And in this particular case, uh, to stand before the, the body of Christ uh, in a pulpit, preaching or teaching uh, from a position of authority, I think is something that is is simply um, um, impossible when you've committed this kind of a sin. So I hope that makes sense to you. Hey, that's the end of our program. The music is playing. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Uh, We'll see you then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow on AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.